Welcome to the Theology of Work podcast. This episode features the third talk of Andy Mills' five-part series on faith and work. Andy Mills is the former CEO of the Thompson Financial and Professional Publishing Unit of the Thompson Corporation. He currently serves as the co-chairman of the Theology of Work project. The Theology of Work project exists to provide a biblical perspective on faith and work. Find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at TheoWorkProject, and visit us on our home on the web, theologyofwork.org. Here's Andy Mills. Well, good morning. And uh, it's, uh, I tell you, what a wonderful week we've had. Isn't this spectacular? And uh, I kind of enjoy the hour in here getting a little air conditioning. I don't know about you all, but... uh, (laughs) By the way, the product of work. All right? And uh, inspired by God. I mean, when you think of air conditioning, how would the westward development of the United States have taken place without air conditioning, right? I mean, these are just the fascinating things that you think about when you see what God has been doing. Um, And I thank you also. I've had a number of great conversations with people, comments that people have made. Uh, Thank you for your comments and your your encouragement. It's been really... um, uh, deeply meaningful to me because as you, I think I hope you can see I'm very passionate about this. I think this is something the Christian church and Christians generally should be really jumping all over. So to get the kind of response uh, from you all of all age groups has been very encouraging to me as we move forward in this work and uh, I'm hoping that I'm uh, basically uh, just bringing a whole bunch more people to want to fight this fight and take this battle out into the marketplace. I think it's going to be wonderful. So Uh, Today we're going to talk about how should we work. We've talked about the problem of work, and we've talked about God's design for work, and now today we want to move on to, okay, so if that's that's the problem, and if that's what God's telling us we should do, uh, and the vision for work, then precisely how should we work. But before I do that, and um, at the risk of uh, boring you, let me just very quickly take the, the high notes from days one and two, because some of you are new here today, and let me do a very quick review. Um, we said that there were the problem with work, and we talked about four things in particular. We talked about the fact that we have a non-holistic view of the Christian life, great commandment, great commission, but not the cultural mandate. We talked about the difficulty of understanding Scripture, because work is embedded all through Scripture, and you can't just go through a few seminal passages and say, aha, I've got it. The fall is a problem. You know, how do we deal with the fall? Fall, the nature of work, changed in the fall. How did it change, and how do people think about that? And the way we think about that fall and what work has become as a result of that changes the way we think about work and what we do, and frankly, changes society. And I talked a little bit about my uh, experience up in the West Nile region of, uh, of Uganda. And finally, the fourth problem is us and what we bring to work and the self-centered nature that typically we bring to work. So those are the problems. The, the God's design, if you remember, was to talk about this great uh, plan that God has moving from the perfect God into the perfect city, from Eden to the New Jerusalem, and that all the developments that are taking place in society and uh, is developing over time, both in terms of governance, in terms of product, in terms of uh, medical uh, activities, in terms of judicial activities, uh, uh, you know, all of this stuff is developing through time with God's hand up, up, upon it and will ultimately uh, be um, finished in the finished work of the New Jerusalem, although Isaiah 65 tells us we will still work 
in the New Jerusalem, for which I say thank goodness. Uh, and it will obviously be different work because it will be without sin. Uh, and I can only imagine what working in an environment without sin is going to be like. Uh, so that's God's great design for, for, for reasons that we don't necessarily understand. He has chosen us as humankind. He has, he has created us as humankind to work with him to move that development from the garden to the city. And in addition to that, he's also gifted us and given us skills to be able to do the things that he wants us to do to get us from that place and to, to allow us to participate in this amazing role that he has. That that's something that uh, he's given to us. That that task that he's given is a lifetime task. We talked briefly about retirement. Nuh-uh. Uh, we work all the way through. Now, the work may change in nature, but God wants us to use the gifts and abilities to the day that he calls us home and to glory. That's our role. It's a lifetime role. Uh, and finally, in all of those things, I just wanted to say that work is a high calling. It's a high spiritual calling. And it's the thing that God has called us to do. And if you have that calling, it is a glorious calling, and you should be encouraged by that. So with that as background, then today, obviously, I want to move on to, so how should we work? And frankly, uh, how should we work often is a thing that Christians do pretty well at. This is an area that we kind of, uh, uh, we're strong at. So in other words, if I'm about to say to you, as I will in a moment, tell me some of the things that as a Christian, when you think about how you should work, what are the, some of the things that come to your mind? Uh, my sense is you're going to have a lot of thoughts, and they're going to be biblical. And Because as we read Scripture, we see things we should and we shouldn't do, and we say, well, we should do that and we shouldn't do that, and that's how I should take those things into the workplace. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, but then what I'm going to provide you with is maybe four themes um, that sort of uh, surmount some of these things, that l sit on top of some of these things for you to think a little bit about uh, as to how we should work and provide some examples for you from my own work life and from others' work lives. Because I, I think to the extent that I can just share some points with you, but if I can put some flesh on the bones and give you some examples from my own work life, I think that helps you think a little bit about, oh, maybe in my work life or something uh, reminds me of something I did uh, in my work life. So let, let's just start. Um, and I'm just going to ask you to shout out some things. Uh, shout out some things that... If I was to say to you, how does God want you to work? What are some of the words that you would say to me? Unto God. Okay. Sweat of your brow. Okay, that's a long word. I've got to spell that. Conscientiously. Can we keep the word short for me? I'm just a... <laughs> yes. Sorry. Connected, sort of in community connected, yeah. Others. Excellent. Did I hear someone say excellent? Thankful joyfully. Thankful joyful. You guys, you guys are a very pious group. Other words. Punctual, honestly. These are some of the things. Again, you remember, we're talking about how we are supposed to work. So punctual... Did someone say honestly? Heartily. Heartily, as unto the Lord. Without gossip. Well, that's a tough one. We'll have to take all the water coolers out. Without <laughs> gossip, no coffee pots, no nothing, no kitchens. Proactively. 
Pro what do you mean by proactively? Uh, taking initiative. Initiative, okay. Accountable. Accountable. Yeah. Obediently. Obedient. Obedient to who? Okay, obedient to your superior? Contentedly. Okay, we all do that, so we don't need to think about that, right? We're all contented in our work? In service. In service, okay. Good. Creative, right? We are created in God's image. He is a creative God. We are supposed to be creative. Okay. Know when to stop. So rest. Okay. No, no workaholics here. Long suffering. There's somebody who's been in the workplace a long time. <laughs> okay, we could go on and on and on, but uh, again... Can you see those right in the No, don't worry about in the background there. But there's a wonderful series of words here about how we are supposed to work. And I think it would be very relatively simple for all of us to go into uh, parts of Scripture and just begin to, you know, talk about where this is spoken about in Scripture. So we, we have this framework for ourselves of what it looks like to work well to be good, to be Christian, if you will, if I, I'm not sure I like that word, but to be you know, a follower of Christ, to work in the marketplace or at home. Again, it's not just we're talking about work in the workplace. We're talking about home, much of the stuff there, uh, absolutely, particularly the long-suffering uh, for some moms there. I was sitting talking to a, a man who has seven daughters uh, or seven children. Uh, he was sitting on a rock hiding behind a tree. I said, what are you doing here? He said, I need a break. I said, now you have at least an understanding of what your wife does 52 weeks a year, right? And he wanted to get back to work. Um, so there's a whole series of things there. Let me, let me try and move up and, 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 and let me encourage you, as you read Scripture, just to have a mind as you're reading Scripture. Maybe for a year, just put a lens on your Scripture reading about work. So as you read Scripture each morning, maybe just ask that question. You know, I mean, great questions of what does it say about God? What does it say about me? What does it say about what I should do? What is it? And these are wonderful things that you interrogate Scripture with. Maybe you add for a year just a question at the end of, the, of your time in the Word that says, did that say anything to me about work? I think you'd be surprised what God, how God will speak to you. These are the kinds of things that come out by reading Scripture. They're all there. And I think God, through his Holy Spirit, always uh, and sometimes inconveniently raises the things that he wants us to work on the most. I remember when I became a Christian, uh, I I mentioned to you that he wanted me to sort of think about people, and I I told that story. Actually, the first thing he spoke to me about, or I I had a, a strong sense of, he wanted me to clean up my language. I mean, I'm in the financial services market. Are you kidding me? You know, I mean, every other word was... You know, you spend time on the trading floors. Uh, I think they'd be a lot more efficient if they didn't swear. They could do their work in half the time. But um, it was just interesting. I felt that was the first thing that God called me to do. Now, you can sort of sit there and say, well, that's a sort of trivial thing. But God led me to do that. And it was very interesting what happened over a period of time. The work, people responded to that. And the workplace became a place that people didn't swear. In fact, I remember, and, and you know, one of the things is men... Uh, I, I forget, 
is that many times that, that profanity and that swearing is far more hurtful to the women than it is to the men. And it creates a, a sort of an offensive environment. So I, I'll never forget, we, you know, over a period of years, it didn't take it, but, you know, we got this, this environment in which even the senior executives as we met, I mean, we'd meet all day long and nobody would even utter a swear word. And I remember very clearly there was one instance where a guy got a little hot under the collar and he used the F word. And it was like, silence. I mean, it'd be like if I said that word now. They'll be like, it was kind of like that in this meeting of secular business guys in financial services, and he immediately said, oh, I'm terribly sorry, you know? And it was just interesting, and God led me to do that. I think that was part of changing the culture of that company with something just as small as that. So again, as you read and interrogate Scripture, interrogate Scripture from the point of view of what are the things, God, that you would like me to work with? You know, as you listen to these words today, are there something you say, oh, I, you know, I really... Boy, I really mark myself high on that and that and that. Mm, this one I'd rather not think about. You know, and we do have a tendency, and I, I can say that because I have that tendency. I have a tendency when things are a little tougher, I kind of put them off to the side and I focus on the things I'm good at. So oh, yeah, I got that one. And then the things that I think God's leading me towards, I kind of like to put to the side. But that's what God is challenging us to do. As you li- listen to these words today, maybe some of them graded on you a little bit. Go to Scripture. Use Scripture as a lens to think about work, to think about what it is maybe that God wants you to be working on immediately. And I find God so gracious that he just leads you through one thing, then another thing. And, you know, after a long enough period of time, you realize you're in a completely different place. Imagine if God dumped all of us on us all that he wants us to change at the same time. None of us would be able to deal with that, right? Because we are wretched, as we heard this morning. And I say amen to that. Okay, so let me, let me encourage you to read Scripture that way. And I'm going to now bring up sort of five what I would call as major themes for today in terms of how should we work. The first one is simply this. At a high standard or with excellence. Is there anybody in the room surprised that that's one of my five themes? No. I mean, I think it's kind of when you think about work and you think of all ideas of work, excellence is the thing that sort of comes to mind. Colossians 3.23 that we've talked about obviously points directly at that, and we we want to talk a little bit about that, but I want to come back and talk specifically about one area of that. The second theme I want to raise this morning of how we should work is this, as yoked with Christ. As yoked with Christ. I'll unpack all of these things. The third thing, in service to others. Someone came up to me yesterday and said, I hope you're going to talk about service. Absolutely. I think one of the things about the Christian life in the workplace is that we are in service to others. The fourth thing, and we heard rest was mentioned as one of these things, I want to talk about an appropriate rhythm of rest and work. Wait a minute, I thought you were here talking about work. Why are you now talking about rest? These things are intimately twinned. And you've got to understand how that works. And I think it's very important for the workplace. And then the final one, which we probably won't get till to Friday, because to me it's a summation. I want to bring it into the sort of getting it right, but just to put it on the, on the docket for us today, is as an, and here's the Greek word, oikonomon. It's the word that we get economy from, uh, and I'll unpack that more on Friday. So it's my little teaser for you to keep coming back on Friday. But I just think it's absolutely one of the key little uh, concepts that, that, that's hidden in the Bible, that's hard to see, but deeply meaningful, and I think really unpacks the relationship that God wants us to have with him in this created order and in, in, in the calling that he's given us. So oikonomon, O-I-K, oik, 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 oikonomon, O-N-O-M-O-N. 
and I'll, I'll unpack that on Friday. But I just want to put it here as a placeholder for right now. So let's start. As I, again, as I read some of those, um, you may have said, yeah, I got that. Oh, don't really like that one. Um, oh, how can I get around that one? Um, just let me encourage you to sort of let, let the Spirit speak to you this morning. Open your hearts and just ask Him to invade you with those comments and questions and encouragement that you need to hear. Everybody needs to hear something different today. So let's do it. In fact, I'm just going to pray for that right now, that God would actually speak to each of you in the way that He wants to, to, to speak to you. So just pray with me for a second. Heavenly Father, we just thank You for this uh, wonderful place, this opportunity to be together uh, this work that you have given us to do, this high calling that you've given us to do. And today we're going to talk about how we should be doing that. And I just thank you for these wonderful men and women represented here, their lives. You love every one of them. You're working in every one of their lives. I know you're, uh, you smile as you see them work the way you want them to work. And as we talk about these ideas this morning, Lord, would you, uh, would, through your Holy Spirit, would you uh, speak to them? about things that even now you'd like them to do differently, better, less of, more of. Um, I can't even pretend to know what that might be, but you do, Lord. You know every detail intimately. And, and would you be in charge of uh, teaching us this morning? I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's go to the first one. Let's start with at a high standard and excellence. And in fact, as you have... Uh, as you have put a lot of these things up here, a lot of these words up here, you see excellent here, but you see other things like conscientious, heartedly, without gossip, uh, contentedly, um, creatively, uh, in service and in gratitude, and a whole bunch of those kinds of things. I, they're, they're all of those that you will pick from the Scripture, and I don't want to spend particularly more time in that. You'll pick those out of the Scripture. The thing I want to do this morning is I want to focus on the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Um, you, you don't need to turn to it. I think we, we know the story pretty well, but, uh, you know, the landowner had three, uh, three servants. He gave them different uh, numbers of talents, and he said, I'm going away and, you know, look after the money, and he came back, and he found out the one with five talents had returned five, the one with two talents had returned two, and the one with one, you remember, he'd buried it in the ground because uh, he, was, he knew he was a hard master and was afraid of him. And we're not going to focus on the third one, he obviously uh, met a not such a timely uh, judgment. But I want to focus on the first two. Interestingly enough, the words that Jesus speaks or in the parable for the landowner speaks in the parable is the same for both of them. Remember it says, well done, good and faithful. I mean, these are some of the most famous words. In, and this is where most of us learn this, well done, good and faithful. You've been faithful in a few things. I'll now you know, give you more. Uh, in, interestingly enough, the story in Luke... Um, the things that they get, they actually get more cities. It's interesting that Jesus responds by giving them more cities to look after, having done well. Again, just back to this physical and spiritual mix thing that we're talking about here. So I just want to look at well done, good and faithful. That's what I want to focus on. If I'm thinking about, um, if I'm thinking about wanting to do work with excellence or at a high standard, it seems to me that what we want to hear from Jesus is well done, good and faithful. In other words, that's God's, um, you know, when he's doing a performance review. That's his performance review. Those are his criteria. Now, as I said before, a couple of days ago, when you see in uh, Genesis 2.15, it, it talks about um, uh, working and tending the land. I say anytime God puts more than one word there, we, might be, we need to be attentive to that. God does not waste words. And here we have, well done, good, or three, well done, 
two words, but three concepts. Well done, good, and faithful. And, you know, one of the things I would say is I think in the world of work, when we get our performance appraisals in the secular world, the only thing they really care about is well done. Because I think well done really speaks to the product. What did you do? If you were a salesperson, this were your targets. Did you make your target? Didn't you make your target? If you're on the production, you're running production, or if you're a production worker, how many did you produce? What was the cost you produced? If you're delivering, did you get your deliveries done on time, even though it rained, even though it snowed? Did you get the truck back without a ding in the wing? And did you, you know, were the customers happy? And did you get 95% or whatever your packages delivered that way? You know, whatever the metrics are. And all of you in the workplace live with metrics, right? Well, you should do. <laughs> if you don't, you have to worry about the company. And if it's your company, you need to think about metrics pretty quickly. But we can talk about that later. But everybody in the world of work lives with metrics. Even if you have grazing children, you have metrics, right? You have educational uh, goals that you, you know, you have biblical literacy goals that you're setting yourself. You have behavior goals. All of the co- those kinds of things that you're working with with your kids to get to certain places. And obviously, if you're in the world of education, you're getting through your exams and you're moving from grade to grade or up into, uh, into college and graduate school and this, that, and the other. We all have those kind of metrics. The, the secular world focuses on that metric. Well done. Did you do what you, you said you would? And occasionally, they'll get into some corporate culture kind of stuff as a result of that. I think what's interesting is what God, when God says, and, and, and don't forget, all that had happened here is a, a servant had got five talents. The landlord had come back sometime later, and the, and, and the servant gave him ten talents. And yet, three things were said. Well done, the product. I gave you five, now a ten. Check. That's a metric. That's a performance measure. You've done well, the product. But then he goes on to say, good and faithful. And I think good, if I can do my P's, you know, the well done is product, the good is the person, and faithful is the process. And I think the thing that's different about God's metrics and how he judges what we do is he adds on top of what the typical secular world uses as a performance evaluation, those two things. How have you been as a person and how has the process been by which you have achieved those results? It's a much higher standard. And by the way, I would argue that if you're in the business of being able to apply standards and to do evaluation to people, we increasingly need to add those, what I would call qualitative, non-quantitative aspects to our evaluation. You begin to see them coming in more and more, but God is very clear on this. He cares about how you are as a person. He cares about how the process works as well as the outcome. I think you could say quite clearly, if you got the right outcome but the process, so for example, if um, you know, the, the, the guy had taken the five talents and he became a, um, I'm going to be a little silly here, but if he became a, uh, started a brothel and he ended up with ten talents, he got the money, but I don't think he would have got the well done, good and faithful. The means, you know, the end does not justify the means. Our friend Machiavelli introduced that back in the 15th, 16th century. It is a very strong uh, sort of social pull that we have, particularly in the world of business. As long as you get there, you know, let's not worry too much about how you got there. Because ultimately we have to report to the shareholders on a quarterly basis and they won't see what's going on underneath the company. So let's just get to the place. To God, that's not acceptable. To God, the process is important. To God, the person is important. Are you doing things well and good? And I want a couple of examples on this. On the process, 
In fact, I was just reminded we were talking this morning. You know, Service Master, um, I, I think for many of you know, I mean, Service Master got into janitorial services, right? Not exactly that high-flying, you know, this is, this is a sort of high-flying, sexy thing that I want to get into to tell my neighbors that we're doing, janitorial services. But because they love God, what they wanted to do is they wanted to do it with excellence. And they wanted the process to be good, too. And one of the things that I remember, a little vignette about Service Master is... Um, most, many of their people at the time in the early days were janitors, right? And they had mops and they had the buckets, you know, all the yellow buckets with the mops and you squeeze them and they're working and this, that and the other. The typical mop length, I mean, this is interesting, I mean, the detail to which people would go to to help. The typical mop length was a certain length which required when someone was working that they would bend over. And the interesting thing psychologically what that uh, service master considered when they did that is if you are in a janitorial, which is a service position, and you're in a, a lavatory, whatever, and people are coming in, and if you're in that kind of stooped over, bend down position, psychologically, both from the person who saw you and for you, that was a humbling position. And so what they did is they lengthened the handles on the broom, on the, um, the mop and taught to mop differently. Both good for the backs, by the way, because if you spend all day long like this, not good for posture. But they lengthened the broom hand, the uh, mop handles by about a foot and a half. I don't know how much that cost, not very much. And they taught a different form of mopping, and that form of mopping was to stand upward and, and to sort of move backwards and forwards like this. So that as people saw you, you were erect, it was good for your back posture, but also your eye contact with people coming in and out of the room. Amazing changes in the psychological kind of satisfaction of that job for somebody who was in the janitorial thing. That's process. Incredible attention to detail, worrying about the outcome for people and how things would work, but having remarkable impact on individuals. There's lots of ways we can think about that. The end does not justify the means. And by the way, the, the underlying theology that we have to hold to really believe that is that if we do the right thing in the process, God will be responsible for the outcome. And we have the hardest time giving up the outcome. We all want to control the outcome. And we hang on to it. And that's when the end begins to justify the means, because I've got to get to that place. But if we're doing what God wants us to do in the place we want to do it, we're focusing on the process, one of the things that we just need to do is to trust God for the outcome. You know, there's two economies working here. There's man's economy, which is an economy of scarcity. There's God's economy, which is an economy of abundance. And we have to trust in that economy. The, uh, the, the person issue in terms of the uh, uh, well-done good uh, is just purely and simply this. God does not want us to be in the workplace in a way that um, endangers the character that he's building in us. He wants us to be of good character. And by the way, uh, for many of us at times, that means standing up against things that we don't believe in um, and taking uh, tough hits over that, uh, mop being mocked. But God wants us to stand with character. And again, if we can trust him for the outcomes, I think that's very important. In other words, God is not satisfied with a good metric, with a good outcome, even with a good process if you yourself do not exhibit the right kind of character and encourage others to the character. Can you imagine the difference in workplace if more broadly we adopt well done, good, and faithful as opposed to just well done? If 
we begin to be worried about the process, if we begin to be worried about character of people, if we begin to evaluate people on that, if we begin to hire people on that, if we begin to train people on that, if we trust God for the outcomes, I think you'll find something quite remarkable. So we have a lot of words when he talks about working with excellence, and you will find more in the, in the Scriptures, and you should uh, observe and, and, and um, be obedient to those. But I would also suggest that God's uh, final evaluation is well done, good, and faithful. And one of the things I want you to think about when you go back into your workplace is how do I measure up on well done, good, and faithful? Because I think that's his measurement. So that's the first thing. That's a high standard of excellence, well done, good, and faithful. The second thing is um, work as if yoked with Christ. There are two passages in the New Testament on yoking. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and Matthew 11. Um, and it's interesting, as we work through the theology of work on this issue of yoking, um, the, the Corinthians passage obviously talks about not being unequally yoked. And we use that passage frequently when we talk about marriage, um, but this is a much broader passage. Uh, there, it's not just defined about that. It's, it's not being yoked unequally in a whole series of areas. And one of the things we, we thought about was what about in the business world? And we had a very fascinating debate and discussion about when do you get to the place that you're being linked? In other words, if I own shares of a secular company, am I being yoked unequally? Or if I went into a partnership with somebody, who's, am I being unequally yoked? And, and, and where, where do we stop and start? And everybody has to make their own decisions on this. But ultimately, I think what helped us understand it was to look at the, just to go back and look at the image of being yoked, which is because we don't have oxen yoked today. It's not something that immediately comes to mind, but it would have been clear to the people in Jesus' day what he was talking about. A yoke, as you know, is a heavy piece of wood that's laid of oxen, two oxen in a pair, and then they're, they're hooked to it, so that basically that wood links them together, and they're not about to stretch that wood. So if one goes left, the other goes left. If one, they go straight, they go straight. If one goes right, they go right. The concept of yoking is to be in a relationship with somebody or something whereby you are actually in the hands of somebody else for the control of your life. Or, vice versa, that what you do directly impacts the other person. That's, link, that, that's yoking. And so, you know, when we come back to those examples, if I own a stock in a secular company, uh, am I yoked to that company? The answer is no, because I could sell that stock. Now, I might sell it at a loss. The timing might not be right, but I can sell that stock. As long as it's in the public market, I can sell that stock. If you're in partnership with somebody, it becomes very much more difficult. I mean, the question is, how deeply in partnership are you? You know, some partnerships are much looser, and there's a lot more flexibility, and you can exit and, in, and enter very easily. Other partnerships are just, this is it. And I think that's one of the things the Scripture calls us to, is to be very carefully how we are yoked with others and to make sure that that relationship, if we're in that tight yoking, which means if, if he goes left, I have to go left. If she goes right, I have to go right. You need to be very careful with whom you're yoked. But the thing that becomes clear then if you go to Matthew 11 is Jesus himself says, take on my yoke. And by the way, remember he says, I mean, we're thinking about that big heavy piece of wood now. And everybody would have that picture. Cumbersome, heavy. And he says, my yoke is easy and light. Which is not what a yoke is at all. 
But why, do we, why are we surprised that Jesus is so countercultural or different with everything he says? What I do want us to be yoked to is I want us to be yoked with Jesus Christ. In other words, I mean, this is a sort of a radical what would Jesus do on steroids. To, when, you're, when you are at work, you are not alone. You and Jesus are together. That's the, that's the picture I want. And when you do something that you go, oof, know that Jesus is standing there right next to you, you go, oof. I mean, to me, that's, that's, that's a terrifying thought. But there's a great thought when you do something that is right, and you know that Jesus is saying that's right, even when it's tough, even when you lose your job over it. Jesus is standing there saying, you did the right thing. And by the way, I am with you. I am with you. So how could we be yoked? How do we think about being yoked with Christ in this radical way? Psalm 89, 14, one of my favorite psalms, the opening verses are all about the magnificence of God. And then it comes to 89, 14, and it says this. It says, righteousness and justice are the pillars of his throne or the foundations of his throne in some translations, and loving kindness and faithfulness go before him. You know, we spend a lot of time with our politicians and our leaders trying to figure out who they are, right? What do they really believe? Here we have in God's revealed word where God basically describes himself as a king. He talks about his throne, and he says, this is, these are the foundations of my throne, righteousness and justice. I would argue as leaders in the workplace, and again, you don't have to be a CEO to be a leader in a workplace. You can be in a a small work group. You can be a mom at home with your kids. We lead in all kinds of environments that we're in. So don't don't cut off thinking because, well, I'm not a CEO or I'm not a senior vice president. We're all in leadership roles. And it's interesting, if you look through Scripture, and I would encourage you to do a Bible study, easy these days with the, uh, you know, the virtual Bibles we've got, put in the words, see all the, you know, trying to go through the, the paper is hard, but today it's easy to do. Do a word study on righteousness and justice, or right and just. It's amazing how many times in the Old Testament you find those words linked. And they are often, often linked with regard to leadership. I think it's one of the great leadership principles that God leads us to because it's who he is, self-defined in Psalm 89, 14. But I think you'll find it throughout Scripture. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, Solomon, for example, uh, 1 Kings 10, 9. The queen of Sheba says this of Solomon. He says, God has placed you on the throne to maintain justice and righteousness. 2 Samuel 8, 15. The writer says, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all people. And then when you get back to uh, uh, Jeremiah 22:15, and this is talking of Josiah, Jeremiah says of Josiah, he did what was right and just, so all went well with him. You'll find these words, just and right, so many times as we talk about leadership. So if we're thinking about leadership in the marketplace, at home, wherever we find ourselves in this world of work we're at, one of the things I want to encourage you to think about is justice and righteousness being the foundation of your throne. What do I mean by justice and righteousness? Well, it's fairly straightforward. Righteousness is that which is correct and true. Righteousness or right is that which is ethical and moral. Justice is that which is fair, without favoritism, and with merit. 
And I want to give you a few examples from my own work. And I'm going to give you tough examples because it's all very well when you get good, good examples that everybody's happy. Uh, I'm going to give you some tough examples. Number one, firing people. That's a tough example. How do you bring righteousness and justice into the process of firing people? And by the way, if you're in the world of business, you, you will fire people over time. There's an economic necessity around that. There's a people necessity around that. I mean, I can get into that in much greater detail, but you will fire people. There was a very famous Christian. Some of you might remember Ken Olson. He was the founder of Digital Equipment Corporation. You work for him, a wonderful man. His Christian, his Christian principles led him to believe that he should never fire anybody. And as a result of that, through the 80s and the 90s, digital equipment struggled mightily because they were oversized in some areas and undersized in other areas. And as a result, digital equipment no longer exists. On the one hand, you could say, what a wonderful Christian man. That's exactly, you know, that's, that's what we should say. Nobody should get fired. On the other hand, the economic realities sometimes overtake you. And there are ways that we have to think about that. But, but that's, here's the question. How, am I, how do I think about righteousness and justice when firing somebody? I think the answer is you need to provide a process by which people can succeed. What do I mean by that? Uh, I, I, I learned this the hard way um, when I was opening my business in London, uh, the branch of my business in London, and I hired a good friend of mine to be, this, to, to, to be the CEO there in London. And he did a horrible job. I can't describe it any other way. And I kept going back, and I was, Gail will remember, I went back almost every month, right? I was overnighting, spending two or three days trying to help him, trying to become kind of the substitute CEO because I wanted my friend to succeed. And after about two years of that, I, I sat with him one morning, one of the worst days in my life, and I said, we've got we to gotta end it here. You know, it's not working. You've got to move on, do something different. And i never forget, he looked at me and said, he said, okay, I, un I understand you need to fire me, but he said to me, he said, but why didn't you tell me that I was not doing well? And I kind of sat there and I went, I didn't tell you. I've been coming every three or four weeks. I've been helping out. I've been... But he was right. I never told him that he was doing anything wrong. And, 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 and he's still a friend of mine today. But his comment to me, why didn't you tell me, was just an eye-opener to me, which is I knew what was going on. Everybody else knew what was going on, but he didn't know what fired him. It was a final act that he had no recourse against, and it was just done. That was unjust. It was not right. It formed in me a real desire to make sure that when we let people go, we do it the right way. What does that look like? In my mind, and that may not be yours, but this is my practice, firstly, to give fair feedback and real feedback to people. It is, you're doing nobody a favor if you tell them they're doing a great job when they're not doing a great job. And be very specific about what that looks like. This is what you're doing well. This is what you need to work on. And by the way, this what you need to work on is so is causing you so many issues right now and us so many issues you need to get that right or else at some point down the road here we're going to need to call it quits but I want to give you six months three months six months whatever your time frame these are the things I want you to work on here are some training we can give you these are the things we want to work on these are the goals and objectives we have for that if you can get to that place over the next six months we're in great shape if you don't then we, we all agree to move on I would say seven or eight times out of ten, when people get that direct feedback, that direct timetable, they achieve the goals and objectives. And what's happened there? You've redeemed a person. You've helped them grow. You've helped them become a better business executive or a better worker. 
They're very grateful. You're grateful because you're not, not going to have to fire anybody and find someone new, and that's disruptive. And you've redeemed that part of the workforce, and you've got somebody better. If somebody doesn't get there, almost every time that the, the person didn't get there, the, it was kind of when it came time, they would say things like, no, I didn't make it, did I? And you say, no, you didn't make it. And they say, okay, well, you know, time to move on. There was no controversy about it. It was just time to move on. To me, that's right and just. You have to do these things, but you have to do them in a way that gives the opportunity to the person to redeem themselves, to be better. Uh, up in Webster, New York, uh, it was a big printing operation. We had a big legal printing operation, and we acquired the West Publishing Company, which is the biggest legal publisher in the world. They had a huge printing facility in Egan, Minnesota. We had a small printing facility uh, in Webster, New York. When we bought the company, it was clear we couldn't have two printing, press, uh, two printing operations. We had to close Webster. We made a determination at that point we would close Webster, and we worked on two principles. Number one is when we know, you know, and that we would do absolutely the, the most we could to help everybody in that organization find new work and move on from there. And if they couldn't, provide very uh, beneficial severance packages. Um, many people moved to Egan, Minnesota with a bunch of the equipment. Many people took early retirement. Uh, others found jobs. We did job fairs. We did a whole bunch of things. Suffice it to say, by the time that was finished, and it cost us extra money doing that, but we still had uh, all the editorial there. So, I mean, the, the reputation of, the, of, the, of the, the company was still important. Um, when we'd finished, the um, union took out a full-page ad in the local newspaper to thank management for the way we closed the plant. You don't see that very often, huh? <laughs> Dear management, thank you for closing our plant the way you did. Uh, to me, that was one of the... I mean, as I look back on my career, that was one of the most uh, prideful, and I need to be careful, not you know what I mean. It was one of the things I was most proud of in terms of how we'd operated as a company. Being fair, being just. Difficult things happen in the world of work. We just have to accept that. You, 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 they're not going to go away. You have to deal with them. You have to grasp the nettle. The question is, when you grasp the nettle, do you do it with righteous and righteousness? Do you do it with justice? Oh, and by the way, don't forget those words, and loving kindness and faithfulness go before. As Christians, that's the way we have to be. We need to be the kind of people that people say, that was a tough decision, and I knew you had to make it, but I respected the way you did it, and thank you for the way you did it. It probably cost you more money. But that doesn't matter in the long term. That's doing it right. That's well done, good and faithful. I'll just make one other comment. Um, I, I had a question yesterday, but one other comment. I used to like starting meetings at 7 or 7.30 in the morning. Why did I like starting meetings at 7 or 7.30? It means all my senior guys had to be there by then. It's kind of my way of getting everybody going early. Um, not a good way of working, let me just say that, but... And uh, it was actually interesting. After about six months, uh, one of the leading uh, executives, who was a woman, came to me and she said, can I talk to you for a minute? I said, sure. And she said, you know, these 7.30 meetings, she said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm making them and this, that, and the other. But she said, can I just let you know, this actually it, it really prejudices against the senior women in your organization. I said, what? And she said, you know what? We may be senior executives, but we're also moms. And we're the ones that ultimately have to get the kids to work. And my kids don't get to work, don't get to school. I can't get them in until 8 o'clock. And you know that I, I'm in always by 8.15 or 8.30. And I'll stay till 
whatever, because my husband can pick them up and this, that, and the other. But in the morning, it's my job. And so when you say get here by 7 or 7.30, you are putting our family under a lot of stress. And by the way, that's a stress that the men don't feel because their wives are sending off their, you know, they're, they're doing the work. I had no clue that that was true. Clueless. My wife will tell you I'm clueless about a lot of things. I'm kind of like this idiot savant with regard to business and everything else is kind of like, oh, I don't know. But, um, but I was clueless. That was not just. It was not right. And we changed. We moved to 9 o'clock meetings. It kind of went against my grain. We're going to start at 9 o'clock. It's halfway through the morning. But it was the right thing to do. Third thing I want to come on to. So the first thing is to work with excellence. The second thing is to work as yoga Christ. The third thing I want to put in service to others. It's the return to the great commandment. Remember what we talked about. Love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, strength. Second like this, to love your neighbors as yourself. This is, this is the great part of as yourself, that desire, that need uh, to respond to others as ourselves. Putting others first. Uh, Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in all things, in humility, consider others more important than yourself. I mean, this is tough stuff. I mean, it's easy to trip off the tongue, but this is tough stuff when we think about actually living it out in the marketplace. Uh, I want to look at Jeremiah 29, 4 as an example, really, of this. Uh, everybody, when you go to Jeremiah 29, obviously moves to 29.11. A lot of people have that as their you know, life verses about God has plans for us and I know the plans I have for you. But it's interesting, 29.4 through 7, a little earlier than that. I mean, the story here is that the uh, nation of Israel is being taken into captivity into Babylon. And this is God's instruction to his people having gone into captivity. And his instruction to people having gone into captivity. So this is not a good business situation. This is not a good work situation. We are now slaves. Just make sure we get the, the setting. But his instruction is for them to basically search after the peace and prosperity of the people. To build houses. To do normal things. I mean, you you look at verse 5 and 6, just to do normal things, to carry on life normally and seek the peace and prosperity of the people. And then it says, then if you do those things, it will go well with you. You know, if we're in a situation where God is taking his anointed people, he's moving them into slavery, and he's saying, what I want you to do actually is live a normal work life, and I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of the people that have taken you captive. How much more should we today as free people want to be seeking the peace and prosperity of the people that we live in freedom with in service to others. You know, this is one of the areas where, frankly, business is in some ways way ahead of the church. Because if you're, if you're a business leader, if you're in the business, who do you care most about? Your customers, right? You want to fulfill every need of your customer. In fact, you're spending a lot of time trying to figure out what your customer needs next. How can I help you more? How can I deliver more goods and services? There is no more other-centric operation in the world, as far as I can see, than businesses trying to figure out how to serve and, 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 and provide product to our customers. The secular world has got this right. We need to make sure that we get this right, too, in service to others. So not just at the business level, at the high level, but also, I think, at the, the specific work group level. 
So when you're in your work groups or when you're in the small environment or large environment that God has placed you, is that one of the thoughts you have when you go to work? One of the things that God wants me to be doing is seeking the peace and prosperity of this group that I'm with. What does that look like? Seeking the peace. Often that means dealing with conflict, working with people who have different views and different ideas, figuring out how the culture of that little organization should work. Seeking the prosperity is how do we work together to make things happen, to get to a place where we can achieve the goals that we've been set so that the compensation can come, so that promotion can come. Oh, and by the way, to give credit where credit is due. That's pretty hard for most people to give credit where credit is due. You know, I'm part of the work team. Oh, yeah, that was my idea. Um, Because lots of things might come with that. Seek the peace and prosperity. Serve other people in all these things to do. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to move a little bit quickly. If we succeed, if others succeed, won't we succeed? And again, who are we trusting in? Are we trusting in our work and our output and what we receive, or are we trusting that God will say to us one day, well done, good and faithful? Or, as in that 29, uh, the, um, Jeremiah 29, it will say, if you seek first the peace and prosperity of the people, then good things will come to you too. We need to trust God. These are his promises. We need to trust God to put others first. By the way, one of the, I think the interesting things about that is if you're in service to other people, you're different. This is where people will look at you and say, what's going on with that person? Why are they like, why, why did they not take credit for that? Why did they, why did they worry about so-and-so swearing? Why did they worry about fill in the blank? And I think this is one of those great moments when you have the opportunity at some point uh, to share with people, and I'll talk a little bit about this tomorrow, but you have the opportunity to share with people the real hope that lies within. This is where you can be different. This is where I think Christ can be. Not only can the, op- the organization and the work be profitable and, uh, and move forward, but God can also be glorified. Humankind is progressed. God is glorified. Final thing I want to talk about, and I'll do oikonomon on, um, on, on Friday, as I said, the rhythm of rest and work. God has graciously given us this rhythm of rest and work, and we need to make sure that we take take that seriously. Now, I know there's a lot of debate around Sabbath and uh, all kinds of theological questions around Sabbath and uh, a lot of kind of legalistic stuff around Sabbath. I would just say the following things um, from my own viewpoint. Um, And I can happily be wrong, but these are what I'll share with you. Firstly, uh, I think it from this point of view, did God need a rest? No. God didn't need a rest. He'd worked for six days. He spoke a few things. Everything was in creation. He's not sitting there panting, going, whew, I need a break. I'm exhausted. I didn't realize that was going to take me so, take so much out of me. I'm mentally and physically exhausted. No. God took a break. Why did he take a break? He took a break and he looked at what he'd done, right? And he declared it was good. And I think when we are created in God's creation, he has given us this gift of the Sabbath to do the same kinds of things. Yes, it's a rest. Yes, it's a break. But I think more importantly, while God is basically building into this rhythm is you know, of, of taking care of my creation and helping me move creation forward that we've talked about so far, God is building in these periods of break and rest so that we, we can focus back on him a little bit. 
just like he did and look at what we've done and think about what we've done and center ourselves that sounds a little new age but be careful but center ourselves back on the real reason for what we do which is Jesus Christ if we don't have a time every week when we can just sit and go to church and think about things one of the things I love uh, on Sunday is we go to Sunday school and church in the morning and then we go to the same Chinese restaurant every lunch uh, for years now sounds like we're old people you know but uh, and, and you know what? We, we sit and talk about, with all my family, my, old children, my older children as well, all come together and we basically sit and talk about, what was the sermon about? What did you think? What's been, you know, it's a reflection of just what God is doing. And then we'll go do something in the afternoon. It's just a wonderful time of family, of reflection, of recentering on God. Because if God is in community with us and if we're in community with God to do His will in our lives to do the things he wants us to do, he's created us to do, he's gifted us to do in this great progression that he's working through that we've talked about, then one of the things we need to make sure is that we need to make sure we have an intimate walk with him. How else are we going to hear? How else are we going to receive that power? How else are we going to take the buffets that take place in the world of work? How else are we going to take the mocking, the whatever, unless we're filled with his power and understand his blessing on our lives? And I think the Sabbath is just a time to take that blessing and think about it. And sure, watch football in the afternoon is part of it. That's, you know, I don't want to get legalistic in, in how you should do that. But this is a time that God is, you know, Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a gift that God has given us to recenter ourselves and reestablish ourselves with God and to make sure that we have that time and peace and quiet and reconnectedness and restoration with the God for whom we're working with. And, and, and by the way, all of the things I've talked about this week, if we don't have a deep and abiding relationship with Christ, then all the rest of it is built on sandy foundation. Period. I mean, if, there's, if you don't have that deep and abiding relationship with God, I would, I would suggest you forget everything I've said this whole week and just go out and that's the one thing to focus on. And then he'll get you to the place he wants to get you to. Work on that. You've got to have that understanding. You've got to have that power. You've got to have that deep and abiding relationship with Christ. I'm also a, a very strong proponent, by the way, of vacation time. I love working and competing against people who never take vacations. Oh, I've worked for three years straight. I've never taken a day off. And, you know, oh, yeah, I love those guys. You know, they're tired. They're shot, they don't know what they're, they're no longer creative, they're grumpy. I love guys like that. Make sure you take vacation, full, full allocation of vacation time. There is no glory in carrying over vacation days to the next year. No glory in that whatsoever. Why? Because you need the rest, you need the restoration. You know, most of the great things moving forward in the world of work are ideas that we have, often in places we don't expect. It's often not sitting at our desk at 10 o'clock in the morning. Come on, idea. Come on, idea. Come on, idea. You know, it's, it's camp of the woods, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So, oh, that's an interesting. Let me just write that down. God brings these ideas to us in all the kinds. And the other thing, particularly for the men, and this is from my generation in particular, when we spend so much time, I used to spend nearly 200 nights a year on the road. Not good for a marriage, not good for a relationship with kids. You've got to take that vacation time to reestablish to the extent you can with your family. They need you too, your responsibility, not just a, a, as a worker but also as a father. Enormously important. You've got you to build into your family because otherwise problems are coming down the road for your kids and your wife too. God has given us this gift of rest. 
He's put it in the rhythm of work. I think it's so important that I wanted to raise it here. As, as we think about working, you need to think about rest. In thinking about rest, we have about four minutes to go before we get that lunch. But uh, any questions that I can take just at this point? Yes, sir. Well, um, at the front here is a question about a work situation, close to retirement, long commute, but the benefits, you need the benefits and this, that, and the other, and interest. You know, it's hard for me to make, it's hard for me to make suggestions about personal situations. I, I think the best thing I can do is provide the overviews for you, and then you pray and see what's necessary. And, you know, you have competing issues you've got to think about. You've got to provide for your family. You've got... You know, you've got your own health to think about. You've got the relationship with your wife to think. I mean, there's a whole series of things that come into that that I can't really speak into. But uh, I, one of the things I, I, I would say is, um, you know, God calls us not to be afraid. And so I, I think sometimes if you see that you're trading a lot of things off that God would not want you to trade off just because you're afraid of, say, losing benefits or you're afraid of, I've only got a few and I might not get another job, I think you have to take that before the Lord. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying everybody should run away from their jobs and now we're all unemployed, but um, I, 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 I want us to be careful when fear is driving our decision-making. Any other? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I'd still fire him. There's a, no, there's, a, there's, a, there's a question here about family-run businesses where you're working with people in the family that you can't fire. I, I think there is, I mean, I was a little facetious by saying I'd still fire them, but actually directionally that's the way I would go. I mean, I think people have responsibilities and people have accountability, and that needs to be clear. And if people, I'm putting words in mouths now, but I mean, if people feel that they, because they're sort of the children of the owners, that they don't have to work as hard as other people and this, that, and the other, that's a problem before the Lord. And I think that needs to be addressed. And frankly, at some point, uh, I would sit and say, look, uh, we'd really like you to be part of the organization. We'd love you to do this and that. But, but this is the way we work. And this is the way that's right to work. And if you're not prepared to do that, there's not a place for you here. Now, by the way, there's no other place. <laughs> I mean, you're, going to see, you're going to find the same problem anywhere else. So what I would see is by being a little tough on that is you have the opportunity to be redemptive. Because that person needs to learn that, right? Uh, and, and so I, I would be... By the way, I love family businesses. And I, I, one of my great regrets, and Gail will tell you, one of the things I'd love to have had would be a family business where I could work with my, my family. Now, there's probably everybody here who has a family business saying, oh, no, you don't. But, you know, <laughs> the other man's grass is always greener, right? So, but, I, but I do believe that the, pract the, the, you know, the practice of running that business should be the same as the practice of running that business with people who aren't family members because that's the, that's the requirement of God to work with excellence. And, and uh, I would make... It's tough love, but I would make those kinds of decisions. That, so I hope I haven't destroyed a family by suggesting that. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Last question. Sorry, what? I, 
I, the question is, what, what about the notion that nice guys finish last? I just totally reject that notion. I, I just don't see that that is right. In fact, you know, in the world of business, there has long been this group known as Midwest CEOs, who are kind of these nurturing Midwest, God-fearing kind of men and women who, you know, have run their companies well and with, with, with uh, you know, great cultures and this, that, and the other, who have been very, very successful. Uh, I don't see there. You, you see, I, I mean, if by being nice you said it does. If, if by being nice you say I don't really care what you do. You got a job. I'm going to pay you money. Just come and have fun. And we don't really. I mean, that's not. That might be nice, but that's foolish. But if you bring a culture and if you bring uh, niceness and if you bring the way you work with people, that loving kindness and faithfulness into the mind, people respect and respond to that. I mean, people want to be nurtured and grow into healthy environments in the workplace. If you create those healthy environments and workplaces, particularly these days where we have more intellectual property businesses and fewer and fewer hard asset businesses, where the value of what people do and think and how they bring it to bear is more and more important in the way that you, you compete and you succeed, the more you can provide an environment in which people are nurtured and feel comfortable and are trained and, you know, you're nice to them, you have a competitive advantage. I mean, I, I, I reject the notion that if you, if you run a business on biblical principles, you're going to come last. I just, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I, it, I, I don't see it and I don't believe it. So be nice. But be wise. And be, and be, you know, be smart. You know, we've got to be... I mean, one of the hardest in the whole scripture for me to understand is the shrewd manager, right? I mean, I, I never get that. But, you know, we're called to be wise and, with, you know, and, and, and shrewd as well as nice. And I, I think we need to bring that combination. So, anyway, it's past time. I'm sorry. We'll see you tomorrow. That was Andy Mills on How Should We Work. For complete show notes, go to theologyofwork.org slash resources slash how should we work join us for the next podcast which will feature the fourth talk in this series the impact